Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Let's go ahead and open in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this beautiful Shabbat. We thank you so much for this week you brought us through and for allowing us to be here together to worship you, to glorify your name. Father, I pray that you would help me to portray your heart of the dance in this teaching and let people see how it gives you pleasure. And Father, we just pray that you would be with us today. Help us that we would keep you first and foremost on our minds as we go through this beautiful day you've given us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Why we dance. This is a lesson I have been wanting to do ever since I started teaching here. But, you know, sometimes God holds us off, and he said, yeah, you can teach that. It's just not time yet. I don't know why he's held me off for about three years now, but he finally gave me the release to go ahead and teach on this. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to share with you about why we dance in our services. And I want to talk about this because it's one of the things that separates the Messianic movement from traditional Judaism as well as Christianity. Not surprisingly, a number of folks have commented to me over the years after visiting Beth Adonai that when they first started coming here, they were a little uncomfortable with dancing as, in part, as part of the service. They weren't certain it really belonged as part of a worship service. They didn't understand how it fit in, and it took them some time to get used to it. But once they accepted that it was worship, they were really blessed by it. That apprehension should not come as a surprise to us since many of us grew up in denominations that actually taught against dance and in some extreme cases would even tell you that dance was created by the enemy. And a lot of that comes from the story of the golden calf and we'll talk about that a little later this morning and look at what was really going on there and why Moses was so angry. This demonization of dance is interesting when you consider the definition of the word dance. That word actually means to move rhythmically, typically following a set sequence of steps, although it doesn't always have to be choreographed. It means to move in a quick and lively way, a series of movements that match the speed and rhythm of a piece of music. So think of it this way. If you have ever heard music and you've tapped your foot tapped your fingers, maybe you've clapped or bopped your head around to the beat of the music, in a sense, you have danced. So is that bad? Is that evil? I suspect every one of us have done any number of the above. On the other hand, there were others who, the first time they came here, or to any other Messianic congregation for that matter, and witnessed dance, they were immediately drawn to it. And some people even had the nerve to get up and participate in it with it being brand new. And kudos to them. What I want to do this morning is to talk a little bit about how I got involved with the dance ministry here at Beth Adonai and using dance as part of worship. I also want to walk you through the origins of dance, why God created it, why we use dance here, and why it's an important part of the Messianic movement. And that will also take us into the scriptural basis of dance. Like several people here at this congregation, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. And during my generation, we were taught against dancing in any form. Some people, even as I said, believe that the enemy created dance. And despite that, I was very much drawn to dance. 
as I was as a young person, but as I mentioned last week, I didn't have the chance to dance when I was young, and I also did not realize that it could be a part of worship. And to be honest with you, I, the only one incident I can remember of in my youth where I witnessed someone dancing in service. As I said, I was part of the Southern Baptist Church. I right, was raised in a very rural area. Even today, it would not be considered a metropolis, although we do at least have a couple of grocery stores close by now, instead of having to drive half an hour away. I'm no longer in that area, but it has really grown. But when I grew up there, it was the sticks. As I said, I was very interested in dance, but couldn't do it because there were no dance studios around. But each summer, when our little country church would have revival, and those of you who are part of the Southern Baptist Church know what a revival is, full weeks, seven days, 10 o'clock service, 6 o'clock service in the evening, service, 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 for full seven days, with the whole purpose of getting people saved. That's what revival was all about. There was one lady there, she was an elderly lady, and she actually was related to me through marriage. She was the mother of my uncle by marriage, my dad's sister. When the singing would start, this woman was truly worshiping God. She would worship God so intensely that eventually she would start her little happy dance, dancing around all over the stage, or excuse me, all over the, um, the altar area, not on the stage, on the altar area. And she would dance up and down the aisles and all around, and it was not for show. It was real. It was genuine worship. That was the one experience I had of worship dance, and it stuck with me throughout my life. And as I said, it was a rural area. There were no dance studios around. My parents did not have a lot of money, and even if a dance studio had been there, probably would not have had the money to have sent me, so I never asked. I didn't even ask God if I could dance. I just held it in. The only dance that was available around there to show you how rural we were was clogging. And I, for some reason, I was never really attracted to clogging, so I wasn't even... You know, I wasn't even tempted by that one. When I was in my late 30s, I did have a very short stint of being able to play around a little bit with ballet and tap. Didn't last long. I had so many other things going on in my life at that time. But I did get a little introduction to dance. Also, back in the mid-80s, I was invited to a local Messianic congregation for a concert by the group Lamb, for those of you who are familiar with them. In its original iteration, of Joel Chernoff and Levi, I'm trying to think of his last name, okay, I, I know his name and I completely blanked out of it because I'm standing here in front of you. Anyway, it was beautiful and they had a dance group dancing as part of the concert. I was again enamored with it and really drawn to it and really blessed by the whole experience, but it would be years later before I had that experience again. The beauty and the expression of that dance, as I said, stuck with me for many, many years, even until today. And it wasn't until I began attending Beth Adonai, almost 20 years after that, that the doors began to open for dance for me. The first big step was in 2004, when I went to see Paul Wilbur in concert at that same Messianic congregation where I had seen Lamb roughly 20 years earlier. 
It was for Paul Wilbur's launch of his CD, The Watchman. If you can believe it, it's been 2004, 15 years since that CD came out. It, time flies is all I can say. It seems to me like it was three or four, but <laughs> it's been that long. I was at that concert that night, as were several other members of Beth Adonai, and none of us knew the impact that that concert would have on us and our congregation. If you've ever had the privilege to see Paul Wilbur live, you know that as soon as he hits the first strum on that guitar, the area in front of the stage is literally flooded with dancers. Let's just say I was brought to tears many times throughout that concert because of the strong presence of God as people worshipped him. And as I said, there were several other members there as well, and a few of them were brave enough to go down and dance with the dancers. I was not. I was actually too much in awe of what was going on around me, plus I didn't have the nerve, didn't know what I was doing. So I just stayed back in my seat, and I just soaked it all in. And as I said a moment ago, none of us knew at that time what God was about to do, but he was preparing us for a major shift in the way we worshiped here at Beth Adonai. At that point, we were still a very small congregation. We had just moved from having our services on Friday evening to Saturday morning. The congregation was just starting to grow, but we had nothing that even remotely resembled a dance ministry here. Occasionally, we'd have concerts here, and we would have visitors from other congregations, and a few people would get up and dance. And as you can see, this is our sanctuary here, a little different than it is today if you look at the carpet. This was the carpet that was in the building when we first bought it. The ark, notice the ark, much smaller. That was our first ark. So a lot's changed here since that time. After dance broke out, we found out that Rabbi Scott had actually been praying for someone to come here and lead dance. And God was about to answer that prayer. A few months after this concert, one Shabbat morning, a family walks in from, they just moved from the Midwest, and they were dancers. That Shabbat, their sons came down, danced right here in this area, None of us joined them, but we watched, and we enjoyed it. Coincidentally, if you can use that word coincidentally, it was actually by divine appointment, Rabbi Scott had arranged for a lady who lived down in Florida, who was actually the mother of one of our members, to come and do a little dance workshop for us that afternoon to try to generate some interest in dance. So a number of us were brave enough to come and join the workshop, even though we would not dance that morning. We had actually seen it used in worship, and we wanted to participate. The lady kept telling us, I've got to go back to Florida, but you need to be praying the family stays here, because that's who you need to teach you how to dance. The next Shabbat, they showed up. They came down here to dance, and guess what? Several of us looked around at each other that had been in that workshop the week before, and we just, next thing we knew, we were down here. It had to be a bit of an amusing sight, to be perfectly honest, because none of us knew what we were doing except for that family. Rabbi Scott was so thrilled that he put his sermon aside. He hit the bongos. When the music stopped, 
His next thing was, Dan, more music. Got through that song. Dan, more music. Went that way the entire morning. So that was our whole service was praise and worship and dance. Some of you may remember seeing this photo a couple of times at our rabbi appreciation dinners. I didn't even know this photo existed till it appeared at one of those dinners. This is actually the first iteration of our dance ministry. So this is going back a few years. There's still two folks in that photo that are here. The others have moved off now and no longer in this area. But on the immediate left, there's a gentleman in a white t-shirt. I know you cannot see his face, but does anyone know who that is? Does anyone recognize that body? That's Milton Thomas, also known as the bread man. You know all those delicious pastries and breads we have downstairs? He's the one who brings those. He's still a part of our congregation. And the person there in those capri pants in the back, does anybody know who that is? <laughs> that's yours truly a few years ago. A little bit younger, but that's me. So the rest of them, as I said, are no longer with, with this congregation. They've, um, one lady's moved down to Macon. Another one moved up to New York. Uh, this gentleman here, I think he's way off on the west side of the city now. So anyway, that's, that was how our dance team started. A couple of years went by as he and his family were leading our congregation, or excuse me, leading the dance ministry, and they let Rabbi Scott know it was time for them to go. So Rabbi Scott called me in. Only been dancing a couple of years. And wanted me to leave the dance ministry. He didn't want it to miss a beat. He wanted it to pick up and keep going. And I was a bit overwhelmed. But he sat there and he looked me straight in the eye and he said this, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And with that, he appointed me as the leader. At the time, I was actually leading the greeter ministry, so he immediately kicked in gear and located someone else to take on that ministry, uh, which is an extremely important ministry uh, for any congregation. And so thankful to see that that ministry has continued to exist and grow, and we've got a wonderful set of greeters around here now. A few months went by, and the Lord sent us even more help with our fledgling dance ministry through the Haynes family. You probably know them as Zimmer Lavov. This family actually lives in an RV, and they travel all around the country. This particular summer, they wanted to set up home camp in Atlanta. So we arranged with them to let them park the RV out here in our parking lot, hook into our electricity, and live there. In exchange, they gave us live music every Shabbat morning. The mother, Shimrit, who you see on the harp there, is also an excellent dancer. She led dance classes for us in the afternoon. So we got a good, solid footing thanks to them. God just continued to provide in so many ways. It was just amazing to look back on it all now. And that's how the ministry here at Beth and I began. Now I want to take a quick trip down memory lane and then we'll get into dance itself. This was the first Hanukkah dance that I led as dance leader. The blue tops you see, the dance team actually bought those and then donated those to the congregation. The white skirts that we have here, uh, we bought the first set of those and then Anna made some more, Rabbi Renee's wife made some more for us as well. 
Since that time, Anna has been our costume maker. She has made some really beautiful creations for us. Does anyone recognize a couple of these folks? One of them is no longer here, but two of them are. Do we recognize anyone? This young lady right here on the front, Daisy, is to the immediate left, and then I'm in the middle. And the gentleman who's on the right was our first male dancer, and he was with us for a number of years, and he's now, I think he's way up in Gainesville or something now. He's way out of here. Then, we had a concert in October 2007, and our fledgling dance team got to dance at that concert. It was Aviad Cohen. And we didn't really have any dances to his music. If you've heard his music, it's a little different than what we usually do in our services. So our dance team got together that afternoon before the concert and threw together some dances. And there's one of them that we continue to do from time to time here today, J-E-S-U-S. -S. Concerts. Speaking of concerts, we've hosted a number of those in the past. Here's one iteration of our dance ministry with Ted Pierce. Of course, you know who that gentleman is on the right. Everyone knows him, Paul Wilbur. Jonathan Sattel and more Ted Pierce, along with one of his friends, who was also a recording artist that was in the Atlanta area that night, and he called him up and had him just to show up and surprised all of us. So we had some great music that night as well. And in our concerts, we were also accompanied by a bongo-playing rabbi, who I think you all recognize. We had a really big dance ministry at one time. It was so big that a lot of times we would break out into two groups because there just wasn't room for just the dance team. As you can see, we had a lot of dancers in this particular special. Had some more specials. We love specials. Rabbi Scott actually wanted, gave me the challenge when we first started the dance ministry to try to do a special a month. And with me being new to dance, it, that was kind of challenging for me. I was still trying to learn myself. So in the beginning, I know Daisy and Diana will remember, we used to try to do one dance special, then the next month we might do something with flags. It was more free form, just to fill in the time, just to get those slots filled. Now we have more music and dances than we can fit in. So... It's really changed. This photo, does anyone recognize this young lady on the left? Yes. That's our own Natalie Seculo. Natalie was part of our dance team for a while. As you can see, she's really grown since then. Natalie down front on this one. That was another concert we did. Here's our beautiful gold and silver and white costumes that Anna made. You see we had a pretty good group of people here as well. And one that's a little more recent of the dance ministry. And as I said, we would do flags from time to time. There's an example of some, a flag special that we did. We've also had the opportunity to minister at some churches and a couple of funerals even. We were asked to do Psalm 23 by Ted Pierce. One of the ladies that was a member of our dance team for a while, her mother just really loved watching the group dance. So when her mother passed away, she asked us to come and dance at the gravesite. We officially became grass dancers as we've laughed about so many times since then. That day, 
we were outside next to her grave, and it was a hill. So it was challenging, especially with all those turns in Psalm 23, but we did it. We did it. So now that you understand the beginnings of dance here, what I want to do is step back and let's look at the history of dance, including its biblical basis. There are numerous verses in the Bible that address the subject of dance. Some are obvious, such as Psalm 149, verse 3, and Psalm 150, verse 4. Those two verses declare, Let them praise his name with dancing. Make melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Pretty clear. Praise him with tambourines and dancing. Praise him with flutes and strings. Again, no missing that. But other references to dance aren't as obvious because of the way they're translated. Believe it or not, in our Bibles, there are actually 13 different words that are directly translated into English as either dance or rejoice. But they actually denote dance as the actual form of rejoicing. As Murray Silberling, that's a tongue twister, Silberling explains in his book, Dancing for Joy, a biblical approach to praise and worship. So I want to look at a few of those words. The principal word is kul, K-H-U-L. That denotes a circling or ring dance. Another is rakad, R-A-Q-A-D, which literally means to skip or leap. Again, these are words that are translated as either rejoice or dance in the Bible. Typically rejoice. Gil, G-I-L, is often translated as rejoice, but it literally means to spin around in joy. It's the same word used in Zephaniah 3.17, where we're told that Adonai, your God, is right there with you as a mighty Savior. He will rejoice over you and be glad. He will be silent in his love. He will shout with you, excuse me, he will shout over you with joy. The reference there to shouting over us with joy is to the word yagil, Y-A-G-I-L. So the literal translation is that God dances with joy over us. Did you know that? Something really interesting is in the Aramaic language, which is the language that was primarily spoken during Yeshua's time, there is no distinction between the words for rejoice and dance. It's the same word. There's not two separate words, it's one. So when you talk about rejoicing in Aramaic, you're talking about dancing, one and the same. It gives us a little different dimension to that word rejoice, doesn't it? Yeah. So we see within the scripture the importance of dance in Hebrew culture. The young maidens of ancient Israel would go to Shiloh each year for the Lord's feast. We see that in Judges chapter 21, verses 19 through 21. Then they said, look, each year there is a festival in honor of Adonai in Shiloh, north of Beit El, on the east side of the road that goes up from Beit El to Shechem and south of Livona. They ordered the men of Benjamin, go, hide in the vineyards and keep watch. If the girls of Shiloh come out to do their dances, then come out of the vineyards and each of you catch for himself a wife from the Shiloh girls and go on to the land of Benjamin. Interestingly, the word kog, K-H-A-G, which we see translated as feast or festival in our Bibles, also refers to dance. 
specifically a dance of circles. If you look up the word Chag in the Strong's Concordance, you will see that it confirms that the feasts were indeed celebrated by processions and dancing. They were an integral part of those feasts. So dancing was common when the people celebrated the feasts of Adonai. For example, we just read this past week about the feasts in Leviticus chapter 21. The complete Jewish study Bible includes the following description of the feasts of first fruits that I want to read to you quickly. The Jewish observance of this festival has varied throughout history. In the days of the temple, bringing the offering as a thanksgiving tithe to God was quite an elaborate ceremony. The Talmud states that a priest would meet a group of Jewish pilgrims at the edge of the city and then lead them up to the temple mount. As they carried their offerings of the first fruits, the priest would lead a praise service with music, the Hallel Psalms, and dance. You just couldn't separate dance from the feasts. They were just one and the same. So obviously, these ancient Israelites would not have understood the resistance to dance that we see in so many of our churches and congregations today. The people would also celebrate a victory in war by dancing. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Dance was also used to show hospitality and express celebration. Judges 11.34 tells us as Yiftach was returning to his house in Mitzvah, his daughter came dancing out to meet him with tambourines. And in Luke 15, verse 25, now his older son was in the field. As he came close to the house, he heard music and dancing. The birth of children bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, weddings, you name it. All of these were, and to this day still are, occasions for thanking God for his blessings among the Jewish people. It was also a way of expressing thanks to God when he would deliver them from difficult times. Psalm 30, verse 11 tells us, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. And Jeremiah 31, 34 Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Lamentations 5.15 says the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. So we see when they went through the difficult times, the dancing was no more. But when God restored them, the dance came back. In reality, dance has always been an integral part of any society. It began in the heavenlies, having been created by our God, not the enemy. But with Lucifer's fall, it was corrupted in its purity, just as he had corrupted music and song. Anything that God creates, he wants to corrupt. He does not create anything. So think back to Genesis chapter 1. What does that... By that uh, chapter tell us each time God created something. It tells us that it was good. God created, and it was good, and it was very good. 
John 1.3 tells us that all things were made through him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has come into being. And we have a second witness, Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. <clears throat> to him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, if it exists, it was created by God. Dance exists. So according to these verses, it had to be created by him. And if he created it, it was good. I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Going back to 1979, there was a Christian artist by the name of Leon Patillo. He released a song in 79 that was based on Psalm 150. And any of you who listened to contemporary Christian music at that time will probably recognize the title. It was called Dance, Children, Dance. He released both a studio version and a live version. In the live version, he did a little prologue where he talked about how there are people who like their music mellow and there are people who like their music excitable and that each should respect each other. Okay? And that's how we should do with the dance. There are some people that may not be comfortable with it, but they should not prohibit others who are from expressing their worship of God through the dance. God created music, and as long as it is used to bring him glory, it is good. And just like music, as long as dance is used to bring him glory, it is good. So just recognize that if you are a little uncomfortable with it. It's God's creation, and used in its pure form, it is good. Have you ever wondered why God created dance? And there's a very easy answer for this one. It's the same reason he created everything. Revelation 4.11 tells us, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So dance was created for his pleasure. So now that we've established the fact that he created dance, I want to spend a few minutes looking at some examples of dance that we see in Scripture. In Exodus 15, we see where Miriam led the women in a dance, celebrating the deliverance of the people after they had successfully crossed the Red Sea and how they watched as Adonai drowned the Egyptian armies. So think about it. The first thing these people did as a community to celebrate their deliverance from bondage was to praise God in the dance. David, we all know this story. He removed his kingly clothes. And he clothed himself as a priest. We see in 1 Chronicle 15, verses 27 through 29, where he did this. And we often think of David as dancing spontaneously with abandon. But the word that's actually used there in the scripture is a word that refers to a choreographed dance that was characteristic of community joy in the presence of, God, of the Lord. So in other words, his dance was intentional. He meant to dance. It was not just something that he did on the spur of the moment. Oh, I'm so excited, let's dance. It was, he was planned. He planned to do it. Messianic Rabbi Murray Silberling, in his book, Dancing for Joy, pointed out something very interesting concerning the Old Testament prophets and dance, and I'd never really picked up on this. I don't know if you have or not, so I want, to read what he, I want to read verbatim from his book. In the era of Samuel and the prophets, dance was an ecstatic expression of the intimate relationship between the Lord and his true prophets. On one occasion, Saul, who was king, 
was caught up in the spirit of prophesying and was changed into another man. And if you want to double-check me on this, it's 1 Samuel 10, verse 6. And I'm going to read that verse to you right now. Then the spirit of Adonai will fall on you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So I'm not making that up. So to continue, the word used here for the prophetic band of men is the Hebrew word kavel, K-H-E-V-E-L, which can be translated as cord or rope and implies the practice of the circle dance. In verses 5 through 7 of that chapter, the prophets used dance in order to become vessels for the word of the Lord, allowing themselves to be overcome by the Spirit of God so that the Lord might speak to the people through them. Dancing was a means for the prophets to ready themselves to receive the Spirit of the Lord, focusing their entire body, soul, and spirit on the word of God. As such, Saul, a dynamic, uh, a dynamic transformation took place when these men danced before the Lord. The change was so dramatic in Saul's case that he was considered to have changed into an entirely different person. End quote. When the people were in exile, Jeremiah stated in Lamentations 5.15 that joy has vanished from our hearts, our dancing has turned into mourning. But when prophesying before the exile, Jeremiah, in chapter 31, verse 13, had foretold the nation's restoration, with dance again being one of the prominent signs. And I read that verse a few moments ago. It says, Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance, and I will turn their mourning into joy. Passages such as these tell us that dance was indeed one of the defining characteristics of the Israelite culture. Luke, a little more modern, in our Brit Hadashah, chapter 6, verse 23, makes it clear that dance was the customary and appropriate way to express joy. Be glad when that happens. Yes, dance for joy, because in heaven your reward is great. But that is just how their fathers treated the prophets. Then there's Zephaniah 317, which I mentioned a few moments ago. It says, Adonai, your God, is right there with you as a mighty Savior. He will rejoice over you and be glad. He will be silent in his love. He will shout over you with joy. What is interesting about this verse is we, we can see that dance is an inborn part of man. And man's made in the image of God. So I want you to think about it. How many times have you ever seen a young child, a child that's never been taught dance is too young to really understand what dance is you put on music what does a child do starts moving and if they can stand they'll stand there and do this just watch it the reason they do that is because God put dance in our heart even as an infant when they don't understand what they're doing it's there they hear that music and they want to glorify God with their body they just know they're supposed to move with that music in first chronicles 20 we see this verse, with the singers and dancers and instruments going before the army, the Lord instructed Jehoshaphat to lead the people into war in this manner. In Ezra 6.22, we see feast and joy referenced. The people of Israel who had returned from the exile and all those who had renounced the filthy practices of the nations living in the land in order to seek Adonai, the God of Israel, ate. And here they were eating the Passover lamb. 
and joyfully kept the feast of matzah for seven days, for Adonai had filled them with joy by turning the heart of the king of Ashur toward them so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This brings up a good question. Why is there so much resistance to using dance in the house of the Lord as part of worship? Much of it actually stems from the fact that dance became associated with pagan and secular societies after the biblical period. But that in and of itself should not cause us to kick dance out. Because we can say the same for a lot of other things, one being circumcision. Just because the enemy perverted it does not mean that it can no longer be used to glorify God. We just need to ensure that we handle it appropriately. The reality is this, and I want this to really sink in. Nowhere in the Bible are we prohibited from using dance as a way to worship God. Our Father never denounced dance as something that we should resist or avoid. There are some places where we find that it was misused, and obviously we should avoid its misuse, but never does he tell us not to use it in the proper manner. In fact, we're told just the opposite, to do it. That brings us to the incident I mentioned earlier. I think we all know what this is, the worship of the golden calf. This is the primary story that's used to teach against the use of dance in congregational settings. So I want to take a quick look at that passage, and I want to point out something that's very important to you, the key to understanding this whole passage. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 19 and 20, it tells us, but the moment Moses got near the camp, when he saw the calf and the dancing, his own anger blazed up. He threw down the tablets he had been holding and shattered them at the base of the mountain. Seizing the calf they had made, he melted it in the fire and ground it to powder, which he scattered on the water. Then he made the people of Israel drink it. So think about this one. What angered Moses? Was it the fact that the people were dancing? Or was it was the worship, exactly, the worship of the golden calf? If you continue reading that story, you will find that nowhere in it does Moses ever say anything negative about the fact that they were dancing. His anger was toward the idol that they had made. There's also a second story that we see used to denigrate dance among some people, and this one comes from Matthew chapter 14. In that chapter, we read about King Herod, who took Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, as his wife. Her daughter did a seductive dance and so pleased Herod that he offered to give her whatever she wanted. At the urging of her mother, we know what she requested, the head of John the Immerser. But again, just as with the golden calf, it wasn't the dance in and of itself that was the problem here. It was the misuse of the dance. And I will point out that even though dance was misused in such a horrific manner, even in this passage, the Bible doesn't speak against the dance itself. We actually see written evidence in both the Bible and in extra-biblical sources of dance being used routinely as part of worship during the time of the temple, and even after the destruction of the temple. But beginning in the second century of the Common Era and continuing into the early third centuries, things began to change. The decline after the temple's destruction in 70 of the Common Era 
then deteriorated even more after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which was around 132 of the Common Era, when the dance really started declining. The trauma from those events had led the Jewish people to feel that, just as with the Babylonian exile, they were the object of disapproval and judgment by God. So the sounds of mirth, joy, song, and dance were largely abandoned. But guess what? This is something we don't usually think about. The dance actually continued to be used by the Gentile Christians in their services after the destruction of the temple. Early church fathers, Justin Martyr and Hippolytus, both described joyful circle dances as a part of the order of worship. But as the transition of the faith became more Roman, although the role of dance continued, it became more formal. Some of the early church fathers even bemoaned the loss of ecstatic and joyful dances. One example, Clement of Alexandria in 215 AD said, I will show you the word and the mysteries of the word and describe them for you as an image of your own fate. This is the mountain, beloved of God, Zion, and on it rejoice God's daughters, the most beautiful lambs which revealed the reverent festival of the word to the accompaniment of constantly repeated choral dancing. By righteousness, men may partake in them also. The song is a holy hymn to the king of all creation. Oh, in truth, holy mysteries, oh, what pure light, whilst torches are borne before me, I perceive the heavens and the Lord. I am led into the service of God. I become sanctified. Thou also, if thou wishest, mayest let thyself be led. Then shalt thou dance in a ring dance together with the angels around him who is without beginning or end. He also stated in another writing, when persons dance on earth, they also dance with the angels. Does this sound like a church that was against dance? Think about how many times the angels are described in scripture as rejoicing before the Lord. Based on what we talked about, that word rejoice means it's almost certain that they are dancing before him as part of their worship along with singing his praises. Then in 390 AD, Ambrose said, everything is right when it springs from the fear of the Lord. Let's dance as David did. Let's not be ashamed to show adoration of God. Dance uplifts the body above the earth into the heavenlies. Dance bound up with faith is a testimony to the living grace of God. He who dances as David dances, dances in grace. And I'll give you one more. Augustine, 394 AD, stated, let's keep the sacred dances. Rabbi Silberling discusses the influence of Greek society on dance and how the Platonic viewpoint that everything on earth, which according to Plato was the imperfect world, is a duplicate of what is in the perfect world, Plato's theory of forms, which we discussed a few weeks ago. Then he discussed an apocryphal text from the second century where Yeshua is depicted as the leader of the dance. And to quote from that, in the apocryphal Acts of John, there is a long hymn called the Hymn of Christ, where the ritual calls for the people to respond by circling the dancing figure of Yeshua. He commands his followers, answer to my dancing. See thyself in me who speak in dancing what I do. This hymn goes on to speak about the dance, 
To the universe belongs the dancer. Amen. He who does not dance does not know what happens. Amen. This hymn is describing a spiritualized dance that enables the, dan enables the dancer to know God better. And I love that. Let's go back to that in a minute. I love that image because you can see Yeshua there dancing children and adults all around him. So when we dance, he truly is with us. Now, author Dr. Ann Stevenson in her book, Dance, God's Holy Purpose, goes into detail about how things began to change as the world under the Roman state church, which was begun by Constantine, moved into what is known as the Dark Ages. And we talked a bit about the Dark Ages when we looked at Greek influence in our, in our congregations. So you may want to go back and look at that because we, everything keeps going back to that. That's where a lot of things changed. We don't realize how much Greek philosophy is actually in a lot of Christianity and in our beliefs today. During the Dark Ages, dance moved from the sacred to the frivolous and the carnal. And Dr. Stevenson puts it this way, and I'm going to quote. In the earliest days of the Dark Ages, the Christian church became a state-organized institution that required the membership of every man and woman, regardless of the morality or immorality of their behavior. Since involvement in the Christian church was no longer dependent upon one's relationship with God or upon salvation through Yeshua, many pagan practices infiltrated the church, including lewd and perverted expressions of dance. To eliminate the dances of pagan perversion, many churches eventually banned all forms of dance, even the previously accepted dances designed specifically for God's praise and worship. To make matters worse, a deceptive philosophy arose that denounced any practice that resulted in pleasure to the physical body as evil. The leadership that enforced these philosophies undoubtedly believed that they were acting to preserve holiness and purity in the church. In reality, these leaders fell into a trap of the enemy by establishing traditions that continue to rob the church of precious gifts designed for God's glory, end quote. So because of its misuse, dance was ultimately deemed wicked, and it moved into the realm of being used primarily in social settings, apart from a worship environment. Some elements of religious dance remained in the church, but many people tried to spiritualize or entirely eliminate dance from worship. For example, Epiphanius focused on the allegorical method of teaching scripture. And to him, dance consisted of symbolic movements of the soul rather than actual physical movements. Where dance remained, it became more formal, such as liturgical processions, and the joy and worship that had been previously known were no longer there. We talked about allegory recently when I taught on Greek, the Greek influence into our culture and how they've influenced the body of Messiah. Although many want to allegorize verses that refer to dance as part of our praise and worship, verses such as Psalm 149.3, let them praise his name with dancing, make melody to him with tambourine and lyre, are very clear. If the reference to dancing is allegorical, then so is making melody using a tambourine and lyre, as well as praising his name. So should we not use instruments? Should we not sing? Should we not praise his name verbally because this is an allegorical statement? No. The command is clear. It's not allegorical. These are indeed physical acts. As more Gentiles converted from paganism into Christianity, 
They brought their pagan practices with them, as we just discussed, including their dances. But they sought to clean them up, thus creating friction between those who wanted to retain dance as a form of worship and those who feared the misuse of it. Despite those changes and challenges, dance continued to play a role within Christianity up until the 1700s. And surprisingly, it was actually the Reformation and the introduction of rational thinking in the Age of Enlightenment that typically dealt the death knell for dance in the church. The reformists, such as Martin Luther, felt dance had no part in the church. They pushed rational thinking instead because it put priority on the mind rather than the body. In the mind of the thinker, dance was just too subjective to be appropriate for church liturgy. Interestingly, though, around the same time that dance was being all but removed from Christianity, we can look back and see the beginnings of the restoration of sacred dance to Judaism in Poland with the Hasidic movement in the 18th century. Their expression of joy and intimacy with God through ecstatic dance moved quickly through the region, revolutionizing the Jewish community. The Baal Shem Tov, for those who may have heard of him, was the leader of this new movement. He recaptured the dance and reintroduced joy into the religious service. And if you've ever had the privilege of ushering in the Shabbat at the Western Wall in Israel, you have undoubtedly seen the Orthodox Jewish students there at the wall dancing for joy as Shabbat comes upon them. That's thank we can thank the restoration of this movement and the Baal Shem Tov for that. Because of dance's history, there are people who are just not comfortable with it in a worship setting. Dr. Stevenson even tells a story in her book of how she came from a very formal and liturgical background. When she first went into a church service where they had true praise and worship, which didn't involve dance, let me just mention that. It was simply just free praise and worship. She was very uncomfortable with that. She actually would show up one hour late for church service to avoid being exposed to it. Of course, all that changed, and she now leads dance. She's a very successful dance minister. But likewise, many people feel very uncomfortable with dance as part of the worship of God. They just aren't sure about it. And there's others who may be comfortable with this use as part of worship, but they're actually a little too self-conscious to actually take part in it. And if that's you, I want you to remember my story. I was very self-conscious. But I'm going to tell you something that I found out. Once you get up here and you focus on God and what you're doing, you forget there's anybody out there watching you. You don't even think about the people sitting out in this congregation. I'll tell you that right now. You become so absorbed in dancing for the Lord that all of your reservation leaves. And some people have said that they're afraid people, they're going to mess up and people may laugh at them. I want to tell you something. If somebody laughs at you because you've made a misstep, the problem's not you. The problem is that person. When we are in praise and worship, that person should be focusing on God and should be praising him. And if they're doing that, they don't have time to be critical of you or anyone else. So throw that one out the window. Do not even think of that one. God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for the heart. Remember that. So now that we've talked about history of dance, let's move into more modern times. And there's, these, these are not people here in this congregation, but it is a local congregation. So if anybody thinks they might recognize some of those people, you may. I think Daisy may know some of these folks. <laughs> I know I do. 
and Diana knows some of them as well. Now that we have talked about the history of dance, as I said, I want to move into modern times. In 1967, the Messianic movement was birthed in earnest when the nation of Israel recaptured Jerusalem as its capital. As more and more Jewish believers sought to recapture their Jewish heritage, the movement began to grow and dance became an important part of these new congregations. And the reality is that dance can play an important part in the life of a believer in Yeshua in a number of ways. First and foremost, it is for God's glory, so it can be used as part of our praise and worship of our Creator. It can also be used as spiritual warfare. We see in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 20 through 23, an example of this with Jehoshaphat's battle against the kings of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, when he sent the praising, worshiping, and dancing children of Israel out before the soldiers. And I'm going to let you look that one up for the sake of time. But again, if you want to read it, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 20 through 23. Dance can also bring healing. In Dancing for Joy, Silberling tells the story of a woman who came to his congregation as a new believer. Her behavior was often erratic. Sometimes she was very peaceful, while at other times they could tell there was an internal battle going on. Then one day, she learned to dance about Joshua taking the promised land, and her entire countenance changed. She was delivered from the bondage of the enemy as she gained victory over her spiritual enemy, the enemy of our souls. And from that day forward, there was a noticeable change in her attitude towards ministry and others. Dance allows one to grow closer to the Lord and experience his joy. So it's a wonderful means of healing in a variety of areas, depression, lack of self-esteem, even shyness. When one surrenders to the will of God and allows him to use them in, a, in dance, it's amazing what he can do. Dance is truly powerful. Though, it can re, though we can, through it, excuse me, through it, we can release ourselves to fully worship and experience God. It can help unite a congregation and elevate the worship experience, not only for the dancer, but for the observers as well. It can be a powerful witnessing tool. And some of you have heard my husband talk about a ministry that he did some work with a few years ago, um, Trumpet of Salvation to Israel, which was, is headed up by Jacob Dumkani. Jacob's, uh, if you keep him in your prayers, he's still still suffering some serious ill effects from the surgery he had a little over a year ago. But, so he's not active in the ministry right now. But dance was part of their, their evangelistic outreach, I guess is the way to put it. In his ministry, he takes groups of people from all over the world, come together, and they go out onto the streets of Israel. And they minister to people. They talk to them. They sing in Hebrew, that he teaches them Hebrew songs. They dance, and that gives them, that opens doors so that they can talk to the people and minister and give them material so they can learn about Yeshua, their Messiah. The Bible tells us that the angels rejoice in heaven. And remember, the word translated as rejoice can, don't, can denote dancing. So I have a few times here 
at Bethan and I several times when I know I felt the presence of the angels here. I knew they were here. Couldn't see them with my eyes, but I knew they were here. There was one particular time I want to talk about when I was at a Paul Wilbur concert in another congregation, and a whole bunch of us were down on the floor dancing. And all evening, I just kept being pulled up, looking up into the corner of the ceiling there, as if something had gotten my attention, but there was nothing up there. And I just all evening, it, it just happened over and over again. I fully expected to see angels up there. I didn't see them, but I know they were there. That's why I kept being drawn to that spot all night long. When we rejoice with a whole heart, so do the angels, and the angels are there, and so is God's presence. So just remember that. And I want to close with this. God can reveal himself to us through the dance. Many of you know that I've had knee problems for many years, since high school, to be exact. <laughs> I was extremely athletic during my school years, uh, mainly softball, but playing other sports as well. And when you play softball, it's hard stops and starts. And my knees really took a beating, especially my right knee. In December of 2017, I had surgery, and they had to remove somewhere between 70 to 80% of the meniscus in my right knee. And it, was it was literally shredded. They showed me the images after the surgery, and I have to admit, it was actually kind of pretty because there was all these little lacy things in the image. But those were not supposed to be there. That was all shredded meniscus. It looked pretty on the image, but not pretty. It didn't feel pretty, trust me. There were three songs I had been struggling to choreograph. One of them, about two or three years, just never came to me. And as I prepared to go through that surgery, I honestly did not know if I was going to be dancing again. I tried to put on a good front, and I actually had a peace in my heart, but there was still that lingering question. Am I going to be able to continue to do this? Just before the surgery, and with no time to teach the dance team, God downloaded all three of those dances to me, like boom, boom, boom. I just put on the music, and boom, they were there. I mean, they just flowed, and I'd been struggling with all three of these for quite some time. Last year, after I recovered and was able to start dancing again, we presented all three of them. The first one was Mika Mocha by Judy Tellerman. Then there was LL Yon by Greg Silverman. And the last one we did to close out Sukkot, it was Jerusalem by Ash Solar. As I said, when God gave me those dances, there wasn't time to teach the dance team. And that apprehension, that fear that I had back there, it was almost like God was saying, I'm giving you this deposit. I'm giving you these three dances. If I'm going to give you these dances, I'm going to give them to you for a reason. You will be able to dance again. So to, that's what I held on to, that I would be able to teach them and praise God. Glory to him. I was able to do so, and I just thank him, because if it hadn't been for him, I don't know that I would. Thank you. And if I had any doubts whatsoever that dance was my calling, that experience totally eradicated them. I really don't think I did. But even if I had, even if, just an inkling of it, that showed me this is exactly where God wants me for this particular part of my life. So I'll leave you with this, because this is important. Remember, God created dance. And he created it for his pleasure. It is to be used as worship of our creator. It is powerful. 
and it is good. So please don't let anyone ever tell you anything differently. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you. And Father, we want to praise you. Father, you are so good, and you've designed so many different ways for us to praise you in the dance, to praise you through song, to praise you with words, to praise you with the way we live our lives. Everything we do in our life should be as praise unto you. And as I'm preparing to close here, Father, I remember a man who was paralyzed. I know several folks in this congregation will remember him as well. And I remember one particular day when we were practicing dance here and he came in and just totally surprised all of us as he wheeled into the middle of the dance circle. He couldn't stand up and dance, but he raised his hands and in the middle of the dance circle he was praising you. And Father, there's so many people that can't physically dance for whatever reason, but it's still in their heart. And there's so many ways that we can praise you. And I just pray that you would reveal that to us as we go through this Shabbat today. Help us to seek ways to praise you, whether it's dance or singing or whatever, Father. Everything we do should bring glory and honor to your name. So we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the reassurance that all things were created by you and for your pleasure. In Yeshua's name, amen.